Malaka Tarkari Ara Tampende. Nadlo Porachi Yaicha Mena Yaincha Yartako Kuma Tampende. Mani Nina Pudne Gana Yartana Nina Padnipanima Poki Mukabando. Toala Poro Tekande Tenanya Panda Tapana Tutokuma. Yaincha Gana Yarda Yaicha Yarda. Today we are meeting on sacred Ghana land. We pay respects to all the Ghana that were and all the Ghana that are. We pay respects to all of our elders, Earthside and beyond, and to all First Nations people. On behalf of the ancestors and Ghana people, we welcome you to our country and ask that as you travel these plains, you remember the people that walked here before you. The spirit still lives amongst the steel, the concrete, the roads and the lawns. Wherever you go, you stand on unceded Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. South Australian Minister for South Australian Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and Attorney General Kyam Ma, Dutton sets up AUKUS versus NDIS fight, Perite's voucher program, and good news for Bilbies. This is the week on Wednesday live. Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday live. You can always tell it's live because inevitably I stuff up the intro. <laughs> My name, of course, is Ben Davison. I am the co-host of the week on Wednesday and the week on Wednesday live. This is our fourth and final show here at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. I am joined, as always, by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, my wife and your friend, Van Batum. lovely to be here and you can tell that it's live because we screw up with microphones every week every and, week and of course we have a very very special guest with us today the south australian minister for aboriginal affairs and the attorney general kaya ma welcome kaya Before we get into the meat of the conversation, I just want everyone to know that we love Adelaide. We have had the best time over the past four weeks. We've seen so many great shows. We've met so many people. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge Heather Kroll, who's in the audience tonight, who's responsible for bringing us here. And Artie, who has to deal with our terrible microphone technique every week. We'd also like to acknowledge Mel and Lou, who have been here four times, have seen us every week. And I want to do a shout out to Kat, who we met this morning, who can't be here because she's been working all day. She served us coffee and she is a fan of the show and she recognised us and it was so exciting. We just want to say hi. That's right. It's been a fantastic run. We really uh, have enjoyed it. But of course... One of the first things that happened while we were here for the Adelaide Fringe was the launch of the Yes campaign the, for the national uh, referendum, and I'm wearing the T-shirt. Uh, but, of course, on that same day, uh, Kyam, your government passed a voice to Parliament here in South Australia. Can you tell us what led to South Australia leading the country? Uh, well, yeah, Ben, it, it, it dates back from May 2017 when we had the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, which I think is you know, one of the most beautiful, succinct pieces of writing ever produced in this country. And I, I remember then being Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in a former Labor government, and just a couple of months after that Uluru Statement was handed down, being uh, on um, uh, in at the Gama Festival in Nillumboy on East Arnhem Land, you know, the, the festival that you know, Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition always attend, and the 
the optimism that was in the air, you could almost, you, know, you could cut it, you could feel it, that you know, Australian Aboriginal people had been asked, what are the next steps forward? And they'd given the blueprint. They'd handed down the Uluru Statement. And as, you know, as an Aboriginal person, as someone who's worked in Aboriginal affairs for 20 years, and, and the reason I got into politics was for my Aboriginal community, just so uplifted and optimistic, being at the Gama Festival, having the Uluru Statement, seeing where we were going, and then just a couple of months later in what, in my experience, was the, probably the biggest act of political bastardry, then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull unilaterally deciding we are not doing any of this. And, uh, and, and I was pleased Bill Shorten at the time, as opposition leader that I spent a lot of time with, backed it in completely, committed a future Labor government to implementing it in full, and then we get to the um, 2019 federal election, and I distinctly remember being at one of my kids' football games, sitting in a car on the sidelines, talking, well, crying actually with Pat, Senator Pat Dodson about the opportunity lost for Australia. And then only a couple of days later, talking to then South Australian opposition leader Peter Malinowskis and just the, discussing the opportunity lost for the country, not having had a Labor government elected. And we decided there and then that we couldn't wait in South Australia for the possibility of a government that was going to implement the Uluru Statement. And we committed there and then in 2019 that if we won state government, we'd implement a state-based uh, version of the Uluru Statement and we won government and that's exactly what we set out to do. It's such a tradition in, in South Australia. South Australia, of course, was the first, um, first post-invasion territory to institute uh, uh, voting rights for women. South Australia had the most progressive laws in the world at that time in terms of looking at a genuine universal enfranchisement of voters. It was only with Federation that First Nations Australians were written out of their voting rights when they had them in South Australia. Like, what is what is it about this particular community that you think, you know, has this, like, proud, democratic, inclusive tradition? Yeah, you're right. There is that uh, you know, inclusive tradition. We, we saw it best exemplified during the 60s and 70s under the Don Dunstan era. Yeah, the, the letters patent that uh, yeah, set up the colony of South Australia were, was a remarkable document that provided for the uninterrupted enjoyment of the lands for uh, the native people of the, uh, the colony. Yeah, it was almost completely disregarded in every step and every act of government since then. But, but it, it, it was founded on some of those ideals of democratic process, and it is in many of the areas that you've said, Van, but still, particularly in Aboriginal affairs, the first land rights legislation in 1966 with the Aboriginal Lands Trust under Don Dunstan, um, you know, we have, we, the South Australian under a Liberal government apologised to the stolen gents two days after the Bring Them Home report was handed down. You know, we, we started a treaty process uh, back in 2017, and now the, the first state to have an Aboriginal voice to our parliament. That you know, it, It's almost, a, I think, a moral obligation as a South Australian that we, you know, we, we forge and, and lead the way in some of these things. And, Kyam, given, given that tradition uh, is so strong in South Australia and, and the debate that is, is now happening on a national level, what, what lessons do you think South Australia can, can offer the, the rest of the country? And obviously Van and I are very much in favour of The Voice. We want to see it implemented nationwide. What, what should we be learning from what you had to go through here to make it happen? I, I think the, the biggest lesson we can learn is there's nothing to be scared of. It's not going to take any anything away from anyone. So we, we intend for our voice to be set up, a fully elected voice to be set up during the course of this year before we have a federal referendum. 
And I think what we hope to be able to demonstrate is no one loses from this. You know, for an advisory body, the very, very worst thing that can happen is Aboriginal people are going to be listened to more and maybe uh, get more of a say in the decisions that affect their lives. And it doesn't take anything away from anyone else. So we really hope to be able to demonstrate that there is nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and only good can come of a, of a federal uh, body similar to what we've set up in South Australia. But I was assured by Sky News, Attorney General, that the sky was going to fall in, that dogs and cats would start eating one another, and the seas would turn red with blood if there was a voice. And yet here we are in South Australia, and we've had nothing but a good time since we've been here, and I noticed the quality of life is very good. What do you say to the naysayers, apart from you watch too much American television? Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, the coffee hasn't suddenly turned extraordinarily bitter because we've passed uh, legislation in our upper house for a voice in South Australia. And you know what? We heard exactly the same arguments you know, um, in the early 1990s with the Marbo uh, High Court decision and the legislation that backed that in, that people were going to lose their backyards to Aboriginal people because of the Marbo decision. It, it is false. It's scare tactics. And it's borderline racist. Oh, I, I think it's it, it's very politic of you to describe it as borderline racist because, as you can imagine, as somebody who's gone underground in QAnon supporting community, I can tell you it is just overt racist out out in those kind of communities that I'm monitoring in Portrait. But I do think it has been really interesting to watch the way that Peter Dutton has tried to turn this into a divisive issue when we know that an overwhelming majority of Australians support The Voice, where we know that it has been a clear, explicated priority of Labor in South Australia, of obviously in Victoria we're undergoing a treaty process in the state of Victoria that's been going on for years. Sky has also not fallen in. Um, and it was a commitment of federal Labor, as you said, made on the back of the Uluru Statement. And these governments have been elected with that policy. And yet this discourse that Dutton has been trying to use as a point of wedge or division, that there's not enough detail, you know, like what can you do with the South Australian example to demonstrate to Australians who, who might have had doubts sown by the lack of detail, discursive ploy, uh, to be comforted and reassured? Yes, yeah, so it's even ridiculous to be asking. It, it is ridiculous to be asking. When Peter Dutton wrote his, 15, his letter that put 15 points and questions that need answered... It took us about 20 minutes to be able to answer every single one as to how the South Australian model works. And that's, yeah, we don't need a referendum. We, we've slightly changed our constitution, but federally you need a referendum and it would be highly unusual to have legislation before referendum, that is, actually seek a referendum on a particular bit of legislation. That's not the way constitutional change federally works. But it, it was so easy to answer Dutton's questions with the particular model. But that's the role of a parliament, the particular model that you put up. And I've got to say, on Peter Dutton, um, yeah, I suspect he and others will look back in decades to come like he said uh, about the apology to the stolen generations and very much regret the side of the history that they've been on. It certainly shows that Peter Dutton doesn't really know how to use Google, is what I took away from his letter and his questions, because uh, we were able to Google the answer to most of those questions. And as you say, South Australia, you, you've actually done it. You, you've demonstrated that, that this is possible. 
I suppose one of the one of the questions that that raises in my mind is that given these are advisory bodies, um, people say, oh, well, does this mean that uh, the voice will have a veto? But they're advisory bodies, correct? And, it, and it's uh, it's about advising on issues that impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And we, yeah, every every few months, yeah, a government will set up an advisory body on, on something. Yeah, it, it, it is an advisory body. It doesn't have a vote in Parliament. It doesn't have the right to veto anything, it doesn't have the right to introduce legislation. What our uh, fully elected body will have the right to do is uh, is to speak to Cabinet, to speak to Chief Executives of Government Departments, uh, to have an annual address to a joint sitting of Parliament, and it will also have the right to speak in Parliament once on any bill that's before Parliament. But it won't have a right to vote, it won't have a right to move amendments, it won't have the right to stop legislation. But I've got to say, the power of having a voice heard, I think, will have an effect on government and a good effect on governments in the decisions that they make. Uh, absolutely. And can, can I just ask, what has this meant for Aboriginal communities in South Australia? What kind of feedback you, have you received about this? Yeah, well, there was extensive consultation over the course of last year in the lead-up to the development of the legislation, then another round of consultation. I think it's probably the most extensive consultation any South Australian government's done with Aboriginal people and communities, and uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, it, and, and interestingly, some of the commentary from feedback sessions from Aboriginal people were, well, you know, we've been telling you this for 187 years that we need our voices heard more. And certainly it's been written for the last five years since the Uluru Statement. Get on with it, please. It's really extraordinary because if you if you watched Sky or hung out in, say, you know, QAnon adjacent forums on the internet, with this kind of scaremongering that goes on, there's a lack of awareness that this work is actually taking place, that there's a process of consultation and engagement. And obviously mm. our experience in Victoria around the treaty process, it's respectful and dignified and inclusive and delivers better outcomes for everybody because it's consultative. Like looking at infrastructure projects that take place in regional Victoria and the level of consultation that goes on, there are positive outcomes that come from having more brains in the room and more brains around people with an experience of country and a knowledge of land and a knowledge of community and community needs. But it seems that the voice is about channeling what is already happening into a you know unified framework understanding of how these kind of negotiations and consultations should take place. Yeah, it is, and it, it's about unifying it, but also amplifying those voices. Mm. When you have uh, representatives of a, an elected Aboriginal body like the First Nations Voice in SA, being able to make their voices heard in Parliament, a government doesn't have to do what they say. But I got to say one thing I know is going to happen is you know, my colleagues in the Legislative Council of the Upper House and of the South Australian Parliament will be asking me if we're not if we're going against things that the voice recommended you know, why have we decided to do that I think it will have I think a, a really positive effect of focusing government's minds on helping out uh, and, and designing policies with the needs of Aboriginal people in mind and you know, for you know, more than 20 years ago I first started working in Aboriginal affairs and one thing I am absolutely sure about more than anything 
everything else is that programs, services designed for Aboriginal people only work properly when Aboriginal people are involved in their in, in the design from the very start. I, I find it amazing. Wow, what an <laughs> incredible conclusion. Who, who knew? If only there was enormous amounts of evidence to support that assertion so we're not just, you know, grappling about in the dark for some kind of... And solution. if only there was a way that we could ensure that Aboriginal people were required to be listened to too. A- amazing. Like, you know, formalising some kind of... Oh, I don't know. What am I thinking of? Some kind of talk, uh, mm. some kind of discussion, a uh, discursive voice. A voice. voice. That's probably what we need. I'll write that down. We've got to do something about that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, how did you? How did you feel? Like, just as an individual, as a person who's championed this advocacy and this cause, when to watch it go through and become legislation? Like, what was that like for you? Well, to lead that process in the legislative council. Yeah. I've, I've, so when I first met uh, you two at the uh, the launch of the Yes referendum, it, it was about an hour before that the legislation had passed the Legislative Council of the South Australian Parliament. Uh, next week it will pass the lower house and then you know, become law. But I, I reckon the the proudest day in my working life was when the bill was introduced. The um, the galleries of the the Legislative Council of the State Parliament were filled with Aboriginal leaders, you know, people that have been my friends and mentors you know, over a few decades. And uh, I loved it that there were you know, journalists and my colleagues from lower house, you know, couldn't get into the galleries because because they were full of Aboriginal people. It, it was it was a remarkable day. Do you find this a hopeful time for Australia? Absolutely. I, I talked earlier about that, that being at Gama on um, in Arnhem Land a few months after the Uluru Statement was handed down and, and the huge level of optimism that change was afoot. Yeah, you know, I... You know, I, I wasn't there in 1967 in the lead up to that referendum, but I, I sort of felt like maybe that was a little bit of what it felt like then, that sort of hope and optimism that there is a you know, change coming and, and positivism for the future. And you know, I, I, in the lead up to the referendum, I am positive that you know, Australians will get behind it and, and we will see that sort of uh, you know, hope and the, the, the best part of our nature come through. I think it's such a great time and I think the referendum represents an opportunity for Australians to be part of the mission of justice and the mission of fairness. And I've always found it extraordinary, you know, this this notion of fairness is so baked into what it means to be Australian. And yet a genocide that that lives underneath our experience of this country that we all share. And the, the genocide that happened here is part of all of us. It's part of all of our story. What it did to hurt people, what it did to promote those who didn't deserve promotion and how the rest of us live in that legacy. And it just seems like an opportunity to, to start on the path of putting it right, of, of healing the wound, of, of creating the Australia that we want to believe in. And I think that's incredibly powerful for all of us to be a part of and to have that opportunity. And it just does my head in to see anyone sowing you know, doubt or, or, or disinformation or unkindness around that process just seems like a a, a willful removal from community mm. and from the best of ourselves as a community. 
Absolutely. Is, um, and I, I caught up with my friend Linda, Linda Burney earlier today, and as she said, the, the Uluru Statement's a generous invitation from Aboriginal people, a generous invitation to walk together, to, to heal some of the um, wounds of the past. You know, so much of the history of Australia has been traumatic, that the stealing of land, the taking away of children, the dispossession, the discrimination, and uh, yeah, much of that informs where we are now. You, you, you have to have an understanding that to understand where we are now and that informs what the next steps are and you know, this is a, you know, a really important part of you know, that process in our history in Australia, the, the referendum we're going to face later this year. One of the things that struck me at the launch of the Yes 23 campaign here in Adelaide was, uh, I think it was I think it was Dean said uh, this is an opportunity for every Australian to make 65,000 years of history part of our collective history and that the nation of Australia will be reflective of that long history as opposed to a very short window of time, uh, which is what the current constitution reflects. Absolutely. And it, it, probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in my lifetime is uh, how more and more uh, non-Aboriginal Australians are taking pride in the shared history. You know, living on the land that supports the oldest living culture on the planet is a remarkable sort of thing. And also the pride that Aboriginal people take that they haven't felt that they can do publicly in the past has been part of that change as well. And, and this creates a really significant you know, validation of that. And uh, 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 I think it's a really important part of what will be our future. Absolutely. I mean, what a fantastic thing for South Australia to be leading the country in. Kai, Very on brand. On brand, South <laughs> Australia. <laughs> you know, with the day we met you, I've never seen someone with such a big smile for such a long period of time. You were pretty joyful. You it know, is true that. We may have been leaning into the optimism <laughs> thing because you were literally ecstatic when we met you and, yeah, quite a powerhouse of influence. <laughs> and, look, I think uh, we look forward to seeing you on the campaign trial for the for the. Commonwealth referendum as well, because I think you're an important and powerful voice for for yes, and and uh, hopefully, I think everyone in this year, and hopefully everyone listening at home or in the car, wherever they're listening to this podcast, knows that they need to vote yes when the referendum happens. Kyan, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, comrades. It's really, it's really an honour to have you here. It really is, absolute honour. Absolute congratulations. Like, it's an, I think it's an amazing time. I'm full of hope. Yeah. I had, you know, I've got to say, I've had a pretty politically disappointing past decade. And, uh, <laughs> and the past year has really seen some things turn around. It really, really has. And look, you know, we've talked a little bit about Peter Dutton and his view on The Voice, but we are going to talk a little bit more about Peter Dutton now because, of course, we couldn't be in South Australia and not... We're going to let the Attorney General sit down. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we couldn't be here in South Australia and not talk about AUKUS a little bit. But I want to talk about it, Van, through the frame in which Peter Dutton has chosen to frame it up. Because... It's kind of amazing. I mean, there are criticisms to be made of AUKUS and, and certainly, like, there are acknowledgements that we need to make. I'm not entirely fond of Australia abandoning you know, decades of anti-nuclear policy to suddenly have 
nuclear submarines. I'm pretty unimpressed with that as a concept. Thank you again, Scott Morrison, for just one more thing uh, that that you did that I do not like. Um, but I've got to say, you know, criticisms of Australian foreign policy is probably where I would locate the argument. Not what Peter Dutton has chosen to do. And if those of you who haven't heard this yet, probably out of a sense of, you know, psychological self-protection, <laughs> Peter Dutton is advocating that we take the money for, for AUKUS, for the nuclear submarines, from the NDIS. It's I'm just like, just... really? Like, are you going to torture some lizards with that? Like, what on earth is going on? It, it's phenomenal. And look, there's lots of different uh, views around AUKUS. And, you know, if you want to hear why it's a bad idea, you can listen to Paul Keating's press club address uh, that he gave earlier today. I don't intend to review that now. But I, I really want to focus in on, on what Peter Dutton is really suggesting because... Whatever you think about AUKUS, and there's lots of jobs in submarine building. There's no question we need a submarine fleet. We're an island nation. Submarines are part of our national defence framework one way or another. And I are very pro-jobs, and we're very pro-shipping, and we're very pro-shipyards, and we're very pro-South Australia, and we think South Australian jobs in manufacturing in shipyards is unequivocally good. All right? We just want to be very clear clear from the outset that. that we have been campaigning for shipping jobs in South Australia for some time. For a very long time, and my comrades at the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union can attest to that, I'm sure. Uh, and by the way, if you're not a member of your union, we you always like to say one. You really should. australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join on your phone if you're in the yurt. You can join online if you're listening at home. But, you know, what, what AUKUS is going to do is obviously... What, what Elbow has managed to achieve with AUKUS that Morrison did not achieve is that they're going to actually build some of those submarines here in Australia. And, and that's a good thing for jobs. But what Dutton has tried to say is that somehow or another this should be funded through cuts to the NDIS. Now, there are 575,000 Australians who rely on the NDIS. It is a fundamental part of our social safety net. It, there, there are problems with it. There's no question. There is a review into the NDIS as we speak. There are reviews around safety. There are reviews around registration. There are people in the NDIS who are saying it's not working as it should be and as it needs to be. And, and that's fine. And those changes will need to come to the fore in the fullness of time. What the NDIS is not is a piggy bank for defence. And to quote our friend Bill Shorten, defence projects are funded from the defence budget, and that's the appropriate place for them to be funded from. (laughs) They're not funded by cutting away at the social safety net, whether that's the NDIS or the age pension or Medicare. We have to have a national defence. We do need a national defence. There's no question about that. Um, If only to deter people from the idea of coming here in a militaristic way. Fine. We accept that. But we have to have something worth defending. And what's worth defending is an Australia that is prosperous, that actually takes care of each other, that recognises that we have the oldest civilization on Earth, on this continent. All of the things that make Australia great, that's what we're defending. We're not building submarines just for the sake of submarine jobs. As important as those jobs are, 
we're actually defending things like the NDIS. And like democracy. Yes. And if there's one thing we've learned, say, over the past 12 months, is that there is a role for democratic Western nations to play in the defence of other democratic nations. And the supplying of arms to Ukraine is one of the most important channels for the preservation of the, the democracy that we enjoy and that Ukrainians have a right to enjoy as well. And being able to be part of that effort to defend Ukraine from a, a genocidal invasion by the Russian state, that's important. And that's part of why we have a defence policy as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, we are we are on track to, to support that and always. But the idea that those kind of gestures would be to defend a denigrated state, a state that can't protect its, protect its citizens, that can't accommodate its citizens, that can't provide quality of life to its citizens. I just, I'm trying to work out, I'm genuinely struggling to work out what the political play is here. Because since he became leader of a defeated Liberal Party, Peter Dutton has doubled down on all of the policy issues that caused them to lose the election. The fact that they were branded as uncaring, uh, irresponsible, cruel, the robo-debt inquiry, uh, the robo-debt royal commission that's been taking place these past few weeks has been terrifying for the absolute genuine I would describe it as like a careless contempt for welfare recipients in this country, that ministers of the, the Morrison, of former Morrison government were prepared to pursue like the, the taking of funds from welfare recipients, even though they had been advised that it was potentially illegal. And Stuart Robert, the former minister, turned around and said, oh, well, look, I had my doubts, but I had to maintain caucus solidarity, despite the fact I had been advised it was potentially illegal. Like These kind of revelations are... are uh, extraordinary. All of those things caused the disaffection with that government that saw them mm. lose and lose seats like Kuyong, like it, it, just incredible losses of Liberal Heartland seats to Teal's to Greens in Queensland, like incredible. And yet he's going further. Rather than just, the, you know, the smart political move I think would be to stay silent mm. on robo-debt that they are responsible for. They were the cabinet. They had heard it. And yet caucus solidarity was maintaining this system. But to go, we want more nuclear submarines, therefore take the money out of the NDIS confirms everybody's suspicions of their nefarious and poor character. And we shouldn't forget that Peter Dutton was Defence Minister when AUKUS was first dreamt up and announced and the pressure was immediately applied to the Labor opposition to have a bipartisan approach and Australia has for a long time adopted a bipartisan approach on defence uh, and people might not remember but before the last election Morrison promised there would be no cuts to the NDIS. Dutton is now saying there'll be cuts so in fact he's gone further than the reprehensible positions that Morrison has, Morrison had. At the same time, he was a minister in the cabinet during robo-debt. The problems with the NDIS have been there for some time. Al Gibbs wrote a really interesting piece in The Guardian uh, just within the last sort of 24 hours or so where she, Al Gibbs has said the conversation about the NDIS and the idea that we would raid the NDIS to pay for submarines 
without any consultation with people who have a disability or people who rely on the NDIS is just the very reason why the NDIS was created in the first place because people with disability in this country are so often shunted to the sidelines. They're, they're perceived as being a, a, a place where you can raid the funding of. Michael Buckley, who's a fantastic um, tweeter at Phantom Diorama, made this point that um, he, he's, a, he's a man who lives with disability and he was saying, well, clearly what the offer here is for people with disabilities to return to the glory days of, of their role in shipping because if you think about, you know, when pirates ruled the seas, you were looking at people with all kinds of mobility and participation issues who, who created, like, maritime dominance for centuries and maybe that's where Peter Dutton is going. He was, of course, um, you know, saying this with, with a sneer. But, I mean, it is, it's absolutely disgraceful. You know, this, this idea that certain sectors of the community have to be played off against other elements of the national interest. And the Tories do this all the time. Like, oh, well, you know, you can't have public housing if you want to have roads, or you can't have welfare if you want to have clean air, or, you know, there's always this imposition, the idea that it's that it's one group against another, mm. one set of interests against another. Defence is in everybody's interest, but so is the participation of everybody with a disability in their community, families, economy and society. And we say this all the time. Every dollar that we invest in the NDIS returns $2.25 to the economy, right? This this constant narrative that we cannot afford to have the things that we need as a society and that we have to make choices about who suffers in order for the nation to prosper is a false narrative. It's a false set of choices that gets put before us. We are one of the richest countries on earth. We have one of the lowest national debts on earth. Most of the debt in this country is held by households. We we impose on ourselves as citizens more debt than just about any other country. Why? Because we buy into this, or not everyone, hopefully most of the people listening to the podcast don't buy into it, but people buy into this idea that somehow or another we can't afford things. We can afford things, we just have to tax people who have a lot of money and profitable corporations. If people pay their fair share, we can actually afford the things that we need and want and that will make us all more prosperous. I think we need to talk about the kind of booby trapping of government and economy that Tories do as well because I know that this is a story whenever a Labor government comes in there are agreements that are made usually in the dying months of a Tory government that knows that it's going to lose an election in order to sort of oblige uh, government and oblige the economy into the kind of preferred shape. I was Because Paul Keating was giving the National Press Club speech today I was thinking about what they did uh, just before the Hawke election back in 1983 where they literally encouraged capital flight from this country and de-investment in order to booby-trap the economy. So the platform that Labor took to the 1983 election of, you know, higher standards for workers, um, of introducing unfair dismissal laws, of, you know, making a, a tripartite economy where unions were part of the discussion about what work in this country looked like, that there was this deliberate booby-trapping that 
that went on in order to stymie any kind of potential change that Labor could pursue. And AUKUS is a really good example. It was negotiated in secret. The the idea that, it, you know, Macron said, sorry if I'm stammering, I still cannot believe this happened, that he was actually lied to by Scott mm. Morrison. You know, and this enormous expense that the Labor government has inherited, it, it, deals made with our powerful allies like the United States that do, you know, and, and whatever our criticisms of the Australian-US relationship are, and I have many and have discussed them at length, they are an extraordinarily powerful ally to have. We are part of an allied group of democratic nations that fight collectively for democratic interests and the right of people to resist invasive genocides. The issue is that pulling out of AUKUS now would be an even bigger disaster than staying with it in terms of the deals that have been negotiated and the agreements that had to be made. The fact that they were made without transparency, without reference to the you know participation of the Australian mm. people and landed a, a government that I'm fairly convinced they knew, a Labor government they knew was going to get elected. They do this again and again from industrial relations, defence policy, the NDIS. There's always a massive problem that a Labor government has to come in and solve requiring so much political capital so much like economic and uh, governance engagement. It is outrageous what they do, and it's anti-democratic. Oh, well, it is. And look, you know, one of the key one of the key indicators that there's an election on the horizon is how many uh, people who have government appointments have their contracts extended unnecessarily. You know, people who have two years to run suddenly end up with a five-year additional appointment. You know, that's and they did that, right? And of course, we've seen how the administrative appeals tribunal had to be scrapped and has to be reconstituted because it was stacked out We've, and again part of that was causing huge problems again in the NDIS and also in uh, migration you know all the things that the the Tory government under Morrison did with the Fair Work Commission for example you know there used to be a sense that yes there'd be slightly more labour appointees uh, when when labour was in and slightly more business appointees than the Liberals were in well it was more like 90% to 10% under the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison regime. And, like, we need to be really clear here that in a democracy... Governments do have a mandate. There's no question about that. And I'm not for one minute suggesting that a government shouldn't make appointments that reflect the values and the policies they want to implement. If they have been democratically elected on a platform that is explicit in front of the Australian people, they have the right, that they have the obligation to govern within that framework. What they shouldn't do is in the final two or three months of their term of office is commit to a $100 billion program and and reappoint 80% of their appointees on five-year terms, which is actually longer than a three-year Commonwealth parliamentary term for a lower house MP. You know, they're the sorts of booby traps that get laid. And, you know, Van, it's interesting you talk about booby traps because I do want to talk... uh, I do want to talk today about Dominic Perrottet's voucher system that he's suggesting. Of course, the New South Wales election is less than 12 days away at this point. Uh, the second debate uh, has happened. I don't know if anybody's seen any of the debates in the New South Wales election. A- anyone in the yurt seen a debate? It's not surprising. They're in the middle of the day on commercial television. So, you know, you're probably missing out on an episode of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman or Murder, She Wrote if you watch the, uh, the debate. 
bets. But, you know, Chris Minns, thankfully, has won them both hands down. Uh, I'm reliably informed. Uh, but Dominic Perrottet has made this announcement and it's... It's a voucher system. I want to be really clear. He's talking about it as a future fund, but it's a voucher system. And, and for those of you who don't know what a voucher system is, it's it's a it's an orthodoxy of neoliberalism. This idea that the best allocation of resources, the most logical allocation of resources in a society, is just to give people a parcel of money and they can purchase the services they want. This is the user pays ideology, and that we give people instead of people providing quality universal universal institutions institutions in healthcare or education or housing housing or anything else instead of actually collectively resourcing a, a standard of quality throughout the community that everybody can participate in, imagine it sounds like communism. What they believe is they give you a voucher for X amount of money and you can take it to your local state school or state hospital or take it to a private hospital or private school as a, as a subsidy. And this is supposed to ensure you know that resources go where a market of buyers are spending. And of course, does this result in any kind of consistent quality bit. No. What it does, re- it, does it result in any kind of equality bit? No. What it results in is absolute inequality. And study after study has shown this. And, and the reason why I raise it as a booby trap, Van, is because the Dominic Perrottet has suggested, so the program he suggested is that they'll set up a $400 per annum account for children uh, up until the age of 18 that they can then spend on education or housing. They can take their voucher, essentially, and go and spend it on education or housing. And that if parents contribute into this account, then the government will match it. Now, of course... It's almost like you have to already have some money to get the maximum opportunities from the program. I mean, I could just be making this up. (laughs) No, no, you're spot on. You have to to get the maximum value from this program, you need to already already have more money than most people have available to spend, right? So it is fundamentally skewed towards the wealthy. Now, of course, there's always there's always the caveat and there's always a, oh, well, if you get a bit of family tax benefit, we'll give you a little bit over here. So, you know, we, we always, they always like to pretend, right? These programs always have just enough so that the mainstream media can be convinced that actually what most of the people in the mainstream media will benefit from, because particularly the producers and the owners of those outlets will benefit from, is okay for everyone. The reality is it's not okay for everyone. Because everybody lives in a five-bedroom house in Kuyot. <laughs> or on the northern shore, on the shore. But part of this is a booby trap because he's costed this program for four years for $850 million. Now, when fully operational, this program, which will benefit people who are able to make a $1,000 contribution already, like if you're already putting aside $1,000 for your kids, like good for you, right? Like I've got no problem with people doing that. If you can do that, that's good good on you. But I don't think you need an extra $400 a year from the state of New South Wales and the taxpayers uh, of New South Wales to contribute to that. And you certainly don't need an annual bill of half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars that could have gone to, I don't know, public schools or more public housing. Because that's ultimately where these programs 
get funded from. And I say that not just from my ideological lens, Van, but from the reality of they've done this in Canada and they've been doing it for a while and the results showed that's exactly what's happened. In Canada, the wealthy families benefit to the tune of an extra $20,000 per family and poorer families, average families miss out because programs don't get that funding. That funding goes to essentially a voucher program for the already wealthy. It reminds me of, of Hex and when I started university. So my first year of university was in 1993. It was only a couple of years after Hex had been introduced. And I'll fully admit, I, pay a, I paid a lot less Hex per subject. This is the higher education contribution. Paid less than I did, that's for sure. Yeah, I paid less than Ben did, even though I would have studied some of the same subjects. I paid less for them at the time. But you used to get a really hefty discount if you paid your Hex up front. So every rich kid, their parents would just write them a cheque and the rest of us who were going to pay off their Hex after they were employed, after they left school, if they were lucky enough to get a job. And being from Wollongong, that wasn't anything that was guaranteed on my horizon, given the 20% youth unemployment rate when I lived there. But it was kind of extraordinary that an entire mechanism existed to make things cheaper for the people who already had the resources to afford them. And this is why the answer to that inequality is, of course, resourcing the institutions. It is in the interests of all children, all of them in the state of New South Wales, for that kind of investment to be made in state schools because it provides opportunity, security, quality, standardisation of experience across a whole sector, meaning that we will get a, you know, like a statistical bump in terms of the quality of our engineers and the quality of our doctors and the quality of our workers across the economy because we equalise the opportunity of participating in training in the economy and feeding children at school who need to be fed, putting a roof over their heads at, at school, creating social relationships, all of those things. That is better for everybody than for kids who are already privileged within the system because of the resources of their parents to have further reward paid for by the taxpayer. And and it's exactly right, Van. You know, so there's a real choice before the people of New South Wales when it comes to education. You've got the, the Parate voucher system where if you've got the money, you'll get a bit more money and eventually that will cost about half a billion dollars a year. Or you've got the Labor policy, which is a $400 million fund to bring public school education up to the standards that are the minimum standards. And New South Wales is a long way behind, you know, a well, long way behind. I've got to say, like, I went to, I was educated entirely at state schools in the state of New South Wales, and it was amazing. Mm. It was transformative. And I had the opportunity of going to university, even though my parents didn't have a lot of money and had both left school at 15 themselves. I am one of those first-in-family people who had opportunities because of the state school system. I have a lot of friends who are teachers in the state state school system in New South Wales. I have a lot of friends whose kids are in the state school system in New South Wales. And I want to dispel a really important mythology about state schools. Like, despite the fact that we have had years of underfunding, they are quality institutions with teachers who are absolutely committed to maximum opportunity for all and will do literally anything to ensure that the kids who are under their care get the best opportunities. We shouldn't have to exhaust teachers and exhaust their goodwill in order 
to get those outcomes. But teachers do it because they have a vocational mission and they believe in it. To not invest in that, to not put the resources in what is the best investment our country can make in its brains, which are its most precious resource and its future, is just ridiculous. And the idea that funding that could go into strengthening an already extraordinary system of education and opportunity to go into some bank accounts that will disproportionately reward people who've already got dollars is sick, it's irresponsible, it's bad policy. And if Dominic Perrottet had any shame, which, let's face it, it's a matter of record, he does not, he would be embarrassed to front a policy like that in front of the voters of New South Wales. But we are where we are. And, you know, the people who live on the North Shore in, in New South Wales, who run the newsrooms, I'm sure they'll do very handsomely. You know, it's more free money for their kids that they can already afford. It's just, oh, God, it's, it's enraging. And I feel it particularly because I'm from there. It's not South Australia, people, New South Wales. It's a very, very different place. And look, hopefully in... 12 or 13 days time it'll be a different place again because I want to I want to move off this topic with a quote from Chris Minns Labor leader who of course we interviewed on the week on Wednesday in December and you can check out that episode uh, he was really I thought very honest and open with us about his plans if he was to become Premier. I'm a huge fan of the anti-privatisation policy can I just say. So he, he has said under Labor schools will be fully funded we'll have more teachers in classrooms kids off their devices and focusing on their learning. I'm determined to end the war on teachers and attract and keep them. And I think that is actually worth voting for. That is a government that I think every state should aspire to have. Now, we have to talk about good news. I mean, we this had Kaim on, which was great news yeah, already. Kaim like, is <laughs> the best news, to be fair. We sort of front-loaded the episode. But we have some pretty amazing good news, and it's about the death of Rambo, which I know sounds bleak, but bear with us. Rambo, of course, was a fox. Not Sylvester Stallone, as far as we're aware at the time of airing. Sylvester Stallone was still alive. I can't vouch, uh, you know, since since we recorded the show. But at time of May recording... May God protect, protect you, Sylvester. We're all thinking of you now. <laughs> But, but Rambo, not Sylvester Stallone, is a fox who has been uh, pillaging the Pilliga State Forest in New South Wales. So uh, just to put this in context, there are some really extraordinary conservation efforts going on in this country to stop uh, animals that are threatened with extinction from going extinct. And one of the one of the many ways that we are trying to rebuild our, our population of Australian animals is through these conservation efforts and a rewilding and a reintroduction of animals that have been in breeding programs to get them back into their natural habitat, right? Everybody should support this. It's fantastic. One of the conditions of reintroduction is that you have to have a minimum of three months of a sustained period of a fenced area with no feral predators. So out of 21 animals that have gone extinct in this country, 19 of the 21 extinct species were due to um, the effects of feral foxes and feral cats. So feral animals is a huge issue in terms of uh, predation and eating the cute little fluffy things that we love so much. Rambo the fox was in a five and a half thousand acre area 
the Billigree, New South Wales, and was such a sophisticated killing and hunting machine that he developed an almost ninja-like ability to evade capture. And there's a story about it in The Guardian today. It's absolutely extraordinary. The, the effort of this massive community of conservationists to try and track down this fox and eradicate him. And when I say massive, I mean there were 10,500 traps. There were 1,500 hunters and trackers brought in to catch this feral animal. The, the guy who was the head of the Hunt Rambo effort was like, he haunts my dreams and my thoughts. It's clearly been extremely traumatic for people. He has literally said he will never forget Rambo and the influence that he's had over his life. <laughs> For five years they hunted this fox. Five years. And the most amazing part of this story is that they think Rambo, because they've seen no sight of Rambo for months, they think that Rambo uh, might have drowned in the floods in yeah. that area or that he just met the term of his natural life and perished and that you know nature has issued a correction. But the good news is that now this one fox is dead. And let's, let's you know, really come to terms with the size of the feral fox problem in Australia. There are now 20 foxes per one square kilometre in Melbourne and there are 10 foxes per one square kilometre in Sydney. Like, you would think, oh, these are major urban areas and they are saturated with foxes that, of course, munch on native animals and and they believe that feral predation kills something like 350 million Australian animals every year Um, and there are almost 2 million foxes who are out there somewhere. And the idea that one fox could cause that amount of damage in a 5,500 acre area is kind of extraordinary. But they believe he is dead, and this means the reintroduction of bilbies of the nail-tail possum. Not possum, wallaby. Sorry, nail-tail wallaby. And the betong. And they're going to be able to reintroduce them, and they will prosper and thrive because Rambo finally is dead. Hey. Hey. It's unusual for us to have a good news story that's all about death, but there you go. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> of course, the people in this room here at the Yurt are supporting our podcast by buying tickets, coming along. Uh, people who listen to the show, who share the show, the week on Wednesday will always be free to listen to, always free to download. We're rapidly approaching 800,000 downloads. It's been an incredible journey. And part of it has been, in the last 12 months, we've had uh, the opportunity for people to support us through Buy Me A Coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday if you want to become a supporter. And we like to give a shout out to our cadre and Extend The Reach supporters. And Van, we're going to put your theatrical training to good use and you're going to read the list, which gets longer every week. It does get longer every week. And an apology in advance if I stumble on a name. Okay, you ready? Love your work. Yeet Yeti. At Antony Bailden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Kristen Secluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corlett, Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giota, at Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Dewey, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cutright, Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Tree McCabe, Nerissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren Ashen, Banjo Matthew, 
Matthew Hadley at Narungaman, Shane Horsfall, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou, Steph, Karina Barley at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, and our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tra Dragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennell, Anna Uren at Roskana888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope at Knot at Didums, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Griver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hoden, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew Ivers Billet, Andrew Bryan, Pedro C, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keith Addison, Lizette Twizzle, Bunker Bashak, Katie Ward, The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Matthew Case, Marky Mark at Vic Beat, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nehuis, Erica Pizzuti, John Lapido, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Polly Bate, and Kerry Arthur! Nailed it. That, that's going on the vinyl. Uh, we just want to say a massive, massive thank you to Adelaide, Adelaide Fringe, all of us, our, our supporters, all of our audiences, the amazing Kai Ma, Attorney General of the most progressive state in the And country. Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, most importantly of all. It's been a fantastic run. We want to thank everyone for your support. Of course, we will be back with the week on Wednesday. And we want to thank Artie, our amazingly patient, capable, kind, respectful, dignified, and not frustrated at all tech, who has dealt with our whole microphone technique for a month. We will be back in our shed next Wednesday. Possibly. Who knows where we'll be? Who knows where the winds of fate and time will take us? But you can also tune in to the weekend wrap on Sunday where I will wrap up the week. Until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for coming. Ooh.